Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Our sermon text for this morning is Matthew 27, verses 55 through 28, verse 15. I'm actually going to read a little before that. I'm going to read a a few verses from 27, starting with verse 11. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but I'll let you know where I'm going, uh, just to give us a little more of the context. But before we read, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we know that Christ has conquered death. We, we marvel at that and we rejoice in that. And, and yet, Father, very often we hear that and are unmoved. And so I pray that this morning as we hear your word, as we read of the resurrection of our Savior, that you would move our hearts and you would draw us near to you, that you would glorify yourself in our midst by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I'm going to begin in chapter 27, verse 11, and uh, skip some verses as I go until I get to our scripture reading, beginning with verse 55. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Verse 24, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But When he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, 
which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to the disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, the resurrection of Jesus is central to Christianity. It's so central that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain, you are still in your sins, to die is simply to perish, and Christians are to be pitied for their false hope. The resurrection, of course, is also key for believing in Jesus. I mean, if Jesus did not rise from the dead... There's no point in believing in a dead Jewish rabbi. Yet if Jesus did rise from the dead, he is the living Messiah who conquered death, freed us from sin, and welcomes us into his Father's kingdom. And yet the resurrection of Jesus is not simply uh, important for its apologetic value. Uh, If Jesus rose from the dead, there are tremendous implications for you and for me. And even an imperative laid on us to tell others the amazing news that death has been defeated, sin has been overthrown, joy is now possible, and fear is no more. So you can see our outline this morning. It's on the back of your bulletin if you'd uh, like to turn there. 
The outline uh, that we're going to talk about is, is one, the fact of the resurrection, two, the implications of the resurrection, and three, the imperative of the resurrection. So the fact, the implications, and the imperative. First, we'll talk about the, the fact of the resurrection. Now, there are lots of arguments against the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe you've heard some of them. People say that, uh, well, the resurrection, resurrection is just impossible. Um, especially if you don't believe that God can act in the world, or if you don't believe that there is a God at all, uh, then you might simply dismiss the resurrection out of hand. It's, it's simply impossible. So I don't even consider it. Some say that it's kind of a, a fairy tale made up by wishful thinkers who wanted Jesus' words about rising from the dead to come true. So they made up this story. Others say that Jesus actually didn't die in the first place, but he just passed out on the cross and later was resuscitated in the cold, dark tomb. The problem with all of these ideas is that the accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection just don't leave them as possibilities. The theories that are set up to explain away what is said to be wishful thinking ultimately end up being themselves empty speculation. Think about Jesus' death. What evidence is there that Jesus died on the cross? Meaning that he actually died and did not simply pass out. Well, we have to turn to the scriptures because they are the historical document that explains Jesus' death in detail. And so as Christians, of course, we turn to the scriptures as the word of God. And, and, and we, even in Matthew, if we start with a scourging mentioned in Matthew 27, verse 26, there we have this severe beating uh, with a whip, a whip laden with bone and metal, so severe that many people uh, died simply from that scourging and never made it alive to the crucifixion itself. We know that this was hard even on Jesus' body because he's unable to carry his own cross to the crucifixion. So in verse 32 of Matthew 27, Simon of Cyrene is conscripted to carry the cross for Jesus because of his weakened condition in light of the scourging. Of course, then you have the crucifixion itself. Uh, There are nails in his hands and his feet, the, the pain, the loss of blood. Of course, crucifixion as a as a um, as an instrument of execution, is set up so that one dies actually by, uh, because they can't breathe. And so they, they have to push up on the nail in their feet in order to get a breath. And eventually they lose the strength to push up, so they cease, cease breathing and they die. This is why the Romans often broke the legs of those being crucified. Uh, it stopped them from pushing up so they couldn't breathe, which speeded up their death. That's what happened to the two thieves on either side of Jesus, actually. That's what John tells us. But when they came to break the legs of Jesus, Jesus was already dead. There's no evidence that Jesus simply passed out on the cross. That's mere speculation, right? It actually ignores the evidence that we have, which is to the contrary. Jesus was brutally beaten and then went to the cross, ultimately suffocated and died. That was confirmed by the Roman soldiers who certainly knew what death was all about. You also might ask the question that even if Jesus had made it through the cross, 
was put into a tomb, woke up three days later in critical condition, got out of his grave clothes, walked on his nail-pierced feet, rolled away the immense stone, got past the Roman guards, and appeared to his disciples, would anyone have looked at him in that state and begun to proclaim him as the Lord of life who had conquered death? Would anyone proclaim, if you believe in him, you can have a resurrection body like his? Not likely. No, Jesus died on the cross. And then he was buried. Uh, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, got the body of Jesus, got permission to take it down from the cross. Now, Joseph was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews, we're told elsewhere. But like Nicodemus, who helped him, according to the Gospel of John, these men, for all of their fear, were actually faithful to Jesus to the very end. These men wrap Jesus' body, they place it in a tomb, and they roll a great stone over the entrance. Mary Magdalene and, and another Mary, possibly other women, are sitting there watching them do this. And that's important because there's a, another theory that the women on Sunday morning went to the wrong tomb. There's this, uh, there's this great Led Zeppelin song. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't, but it's about a guy who's supposed to meet a girl, and uh, throughout the song, the girl doesn't show up, and he's waiting on the street for this girl, and, and she doesn't show up, and he starts to wonder what he did wrong. Did he insult her, right? Why doesn't she show? And eventually, he realizes, oh, I'm just a fool waiting on the wrong block, right? He was in the wrong place. Some say that the tomb was empty because the women just, just went to the wrong tomb, they were supposed to be, you know, three tombs down or something like that. They're in the wrong place. But no, the women are sitting there watching Jesus' burial. They watch. They take note. And not only that, the religious leaders have the tomb sealed. They go back to Pilate uh, in verse 63, and they say this, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Now, it's amazing that uh, the religious leaders in that day picked up on this theme of the resurrection in Jesus' teaching in a way that Jesus' own disciples did not. But, of course, the one charge that stuck, you may remember, in their court was that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And the religious leaders weren't stupid. They actually knew that Jesus was talking about his own death and his own resurrection. And so the religious leaders uh, want to make sure Jesus' disciples don't steal the body and, they be and then begin to tell people that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so they take a guard of soldiers. They seal the stone somehow. They set a guard. And their goal is to ensure that Jesus' body could not have been stolen which, of course, is exactly what they did. They ensured for us that we can't speculate that, that, well, maybe Jesus' followers just stole the body. No, the soldiers were at the door, and they would have made sure that that didn't happen. So what does happen? Well, chapter 28. Uh, now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. See, an angel appears on Sunday morning and rolls the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but to allow the women to see in. 
and the guards see it too, and they're terrified. And the angel says to the women, in verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And this is a key moment, right? Because the women are called to see the empty tomb. And that they see the empty tomb allows them to be eyewitnesses that testify that the grave is really empty. And yet, at the same time, that they were women in that culture makes their testimony completely invalid. Women weren't allowed to testify in court in that day, which means... If you're making this up, you would have had Peter come to the tomb first, or James, or John, or anybody but a group of women whose words would have been dismissed as fairy tales. But of course, every resurrection account says that the women came to the tomb first. Why? Because the women came to the tomb first. And they see the empty tomb, and the angel continues in verse 7, "...then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead." Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. The women are called to be the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And verse 8 says they, they run off with fear and joy to tell the disciples. And behold, we're told. And this is a great word here because it's the word for look and see. Behold, Jesus met them. And they fall at his feet in worship. And it's interesting, the text says that they take hold of his feet. Right? This is no ghost. This is no hallucination. They, they take hold of his feet. It doesn't get much more earthy than someone's feet. And Jesus basically says the same thing as the angel said in verse 10. He says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Go, tell, see. Now, again, some uh, might speculate that maybe the tomb just wasn't really empty, and all, all of this is just made up by the disciples. But notice what happens next. Because the guards go into the city, and they tell the chief priests everything. They saw the angel, they saw the stone rolled away, they saw the empty tomb, they heard the angel's message that Jesus has risen, and they relay all this to the religious leaders. And immediately, the religious leaders come up with a story, and they bribe the soldiers to repeat it, that the disciples stole the body while the soldiers were sleeping. And Matthew tells us that the Jews had spread that story to this day. It's interesting, if you read some of the early church fathers, you see that the, uh, they, the church fathers say that the Jewish people were continuing to spread that story, even a hundred plus years later. <clears throat> So, on the one hand, you can't say that Jesus didn't die on the cross because that's both implausible and, and pretty much just speculation. On the other hand, you can't say that the tomb wasn't empty because both Jesus' followers and his enemies admitted that the tomb was empty. Of course, if it wasn't empty, anyone could have gone and produced the corpse and disproved the resurrection. But no one did that because the tomb was indeed empty. And notice the stress here on this, throughout this whole passage on seeing. 
The stone is rolled away so that women can see the empty tomb, says the angel. The angel says that, that Jesus is going to Galilee, and there the disciples will see him. Uh, the women behold Jesus on their way, who repeats the message that the disciples will see Jesus in Galilee. And of course, the other gospel accounts have multiple sightings of the resurrected Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul records that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at once, of whom, most of whom, Paul says, are still alive. Meaning, Paul is saying, right, if you want to go, if you want, you can just go and ask them what they saw. Talk to them, talk to people, 500 or so, who saw the resurrected Jesus. Jesus' tomb was empty and hundreds of people saw him rise from the dead or risen from the dead. In Acts chapter 1, the apostles are, are talking about replacing Judas. And uh, Judas had forsaken his role as an apostle, you may remember. So they are discussing the qualifications for replacing him. What does it mean to be an apostle? And the qualification that they set down is the person had to be with Jesus during his whole ministry until the very day Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. Why? Why did they have to be there the whole time from beginning to the very end? Well, because the apostles, their role was to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And only if they were with him for the whole three years and saw him after his resurrection, could they verify that Jesus had indeed risen. If they only saw Jesus before the cross, well, then they couldn't say that he rose. And if they only saw uh, Jesus after his resurrection, then they couldn't verify that this was indeed the same person. And so they choose someone who can legitimately be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus and can say, yes, this is Jesus who I saw and who I knew for three years before he died and who I saw after he rose from the dead. You see, at the end of the day, it is the uh, eyewitness of the apostles that is appointed by Jesus as the means for us to come to know about the resurrection. Jesus' tomb was empty. Hundreds of people saw him risen from the dead. And the apostles have borne witness to that and written their eyewitness testimony down in the New Testament. That's what the New Testament is, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles to a great degree. Now, I, I want to move on to talk about some of the implications, but even here we'll see further evidence of the resurrection. You know, a death in our culture is seen as pretty much inevitable, Death, we are told, is just a natural part of life. But death, when we're honest, is a bringer of all kinds of fear and worry and anxiety and angst and sadness into life. I mean, think about the disciples even, right? Uh, when Jesus is arrested, they scatter. Why? Why do they scatter? Well, they're afraid of what might happen. They're afraid of the threat of death. They're afraid of the power of the sword that the civil government holds. Peter denies Jesus three times. Why does he do that? Well, he's afraid maybe of ridicule or afraid of, sort of social death. Maybe he's afraid of the arrest, of being arrested at this point. He's certainly confused on some level as to what exactly is going on. Maybe he's afraid of being wrong in the end after three years of following Jesus. Death has ended their rabbi's teaching. Death has ended their hope of the kingdom. Death brings with it all kinds of fear and anxiety and worry and loss. And of course, most of all, death brings with it the fear of death, the fear that life uh, will not be what we long for it to be, 
the fear that life is not going to be what we think it should be. So Jesus died and was buried. The guards were posted at his tomb. An angel appears. The earth shakes. The stone is rolled back and the soldiers tremble. Fear overtakes them. They become like dead men, which I take to mean either that they, they, they fell down as if dead or they just stood still as a statue paralyzed with fear, not able to move or maybe both. I don't know. The angel announces to the women then in verse 5, do not be afraid. Their rabbi is dead. His tomb is guarded. An angel appears, which is always terrifying in Scripture. Of course they're afraid. But the angel says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. He is not here, the angel said. He has risen from the dead. Come and see. The end result is that the women leave in verse 8 with fear and great joy. And then Jesus appears. And he too says, do not be afraid. But that's not the the first word that he says to them. The first word that Jesus says in verse 9 is greetings. Now, greetings is is a fine translation of that word. But in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, You actually see that word twice. Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Jesus could have come to them and and said greetings. Right? That's a, a legitimate way of translating that word. But the implication is Jesus comes to them and says rejoice. Rejoice. You know, if death is, is just the inevitable, if it's just a natural part of life, there is much to fear. Our lives are, are short. They're often full of trouble. And then we die. And if this is all we get, fear tends to grip us, right? The fear of maybe an untimely or an early premature death. Uh, the fear of sickness ruining what little life we have. Uh, the fear of not getting all you can while you can. Right? The, the, the nowadays called fear of missing out. The fear of being on the bottom of the ladder. Eking out a miserable existence while you're catering to the needs of others while you go overlooked. And then the end. If death is the inevitable end, then, then we strive right, to hold on to life as much as possible to get whatever we can. We kind of live in this perpetual anxiety, this perpetual fear that I might miss out. The angel says, do not be afraid. Jesus says, do not be afraid. It's actually the most repeated command in the Bible. Do not fear. It's everywhere, right? All over the place. God is constantly telling his people, don't be afraid. Why? Why not? Right? Why shouldn't we fear? Well, the short answer in the Bible is, of course, that God is in control. God is working for the good of his people. You know, fear is the recognition that I don't have the resources I need to face the challenges that I'm about to face. I can't handle this. It's out of my control. I can't ensure life, life as I would have it for myself. And I'm afraid of what's going to happen. I'm afraid of the death that I'm about to experience. God says, do not fear. I've got this. I've got your back, right? I'm in control. Don't worry. Don't fret. And yet, here in this text, there's more going on than that. right? Verse 5 says, do not be afraid. Verse 6 says, he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has conquered death. 
Death introduces fear into human existence, fear that I won't have life as it ought to be. But Jesus comes and conquers death. Life as it was meant to be can be ours in him. There's no need ever to fear about missing out in life again. Jesus has conquered death, which means he has brought life. Now, what, what does that mean? What that means is, as you read the rest of Scripture, first and foremost, it means Jesus has reconciled us to our Father in heaven so that we can experience life as it was meant to be, which is life in communion with God, life in fellowship with our Father. Jesus gives us his Spirit, who begins to renew us inwardly now so that we become new people, recreated in Christ Jesus. Jesus promises a resurrection at his return when the Spirit will renew us externally and our bodies will be put back together, remade, reformed, and we will know life in that way as well. Jesus is renewing human community in the church as we wrestle together uh, on how to love one another and how to love the world. Jesus will renew the whole created order at his return when he will make a new heavens and a new earth cleansing the world of sin and death. Jesus has brought life in every dimension, which is why when Jesus meets the women on the road, the first thing he says is, Rejoice! Rejoice! Death has been conquered. Rejoice! Life has come. Rejoice and do not fear. Nothing can ever harm you again. You'll never miss out on life. Not because you're going to Not because you're promised to enjoy all good things in the here and now in this moment. But because even if you do miss out on what this world has to offer, in the midst of that you will have communion with your Father, worth more than silver or gold, sweeter than honey. And even if you miss out here, you have the hope of life to come, which will be better than the best that the present life has to offer. Rejoice and do not fear. Death has been conquered and life has come. The resurrection is an event in history where God overturns the reign of death in time and space and brings life. Rejoice and do not fear. That's the fact. The fact of the resurrection, some of the implications of the resurrection. Now we're going to move on to the imperative of the resurrection. Now, now we've talked about uh, the fact that people tend to dismiss the resurrection as a fairy tale or an empty sort of religious propaganda. But the Bible, of course, teaches Jesus rose from the dead, and there were eyewitnesses to that fact. Uh, We tend to think about death as, as natural and inevitable, and the Bible teaches that Jesus has conquered death, that fear has been vanquished, that joy has come. Nowadays, we also tend to think that evangelism or proselytizing, or sharing the good news of Jesus is somehow inherently wrong. Uh, People will even say it's inherently violent, or condescending, or culturally imperialistic. Or, to put it simply, right, our culture tends to see evangelism as bad. Some have put it, uh, it's unloving, people say, to seek to convert other people. We need to start with two things here. Briefly, first, uh, by seeking to impose that view on us, of course, that evangelism is inherently bad, by arguing for it, whoever espouses that view is seeking to convert us to their viewpoint. 
And so if they really think that it's violent and condescending and culturally imperialistic, they shouldn't try to convince others of that view. Uh, the second is that Christianity is, is actually not simply about trying to win people to your viewpoint. Evangelism is not simply uh, trying to win people to your viewpoint. If that is the way you think about evangelism, I'm just trying to win people to my side of things, well, then it may be for you violent or condescending or culturally imperialistic. But the mandate or the imperative of Christianity and the resurrection is not, it's not simply about winning people to your point of view. Our text this morning uh, focuses on the proclamation of the risen Christ. I mean, notice the angel at the tomb, right, announces the risen Christ. He is here, for he has risen as he said. The angel rolls back the stone. Why? So that the women can see the place where he lay, but lays no longer. The angels then instruct the women, go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And then the end of that verse says, see, I have told you. The angel says, I have told you, now you go and tell others. And I wonder if you've ever noticed, I didn't until I was studying the passage this week, that Matthew himself does not narrate the resurrection. Matthew never tells us, then Jesus rose from the dead. Rather, the women hear it from the angel, the disciples and the apostles hear it from the women, we hear it from the apostles. And there's one uh, really striking thing in this passage, that it's not only the women who go and tell... As the women go and tell the disciples, the guards go and tell the religious leaders. It's interesting, aside from the angel, the first people who share the good news in the Gospel of Matthew are the guards, the soldiers. And they share it with the chief priests of Israel. Verse 11 says that they told the chief priests all that had taken place, right? All that had taken place, it says. So they told the religious leaders about the angel and the stone rolled back and the empty tomb and the announcement that Jesus had risen. And so the very first hearers of the good news, besides the women at the tomb, immediately come up with an alternate story to attempt to undermine the account that Jesus had risen from the dead. They hear it, and the very first people that hear it beside the women refuse to believe it. They don't want to believe it. They hated Jesus. They got rid of Jesus. They killed Jesus because he was bothersome to them. And yet that announcement, nevertheless, went out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to all, to all of Rome to the ends of the earth. By the power of the Spirit, people come to believe the truth instead of the lie that was spread that day. The women saw the empty tomb and told. The disciples saw the risen Jesus and told. We are now to tell, not because we have seen. Uh, we haven't seen the empty tomb. Uh, we haven't seen the risen Jesus, but we tell on the basis of the eyewitness of the apostles that they saw, they wrote it down, we believe by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, and so we proclaim. It, you know, it's interesting, we often accuse the news of being biased, one way or another, whatever side you're on, and uh, news at its best, we think, is simply reporting what has happened there's a sense in which uh, all we're doing when we evangelize is reporting the resurrection on the ba basis of eyewitness testimony. We announce Jesus has risen from the dead. And yet, at the same time, we cannot, uh, we dare not be unbiased. I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. 
Death has been conquered. Sin has been atoned for. Life has been offered. Jesus has become our Lord and our King, our Master and our Savior. We experience His resurrection power by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. You know, the angels in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke put it this way in chapter 2, verse 10. They said uh, to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And you know how it is uh, in life, right? When, you're, when your favorite sports team wins, uh, people jump up and down and they shout out loud and people just can't wait to tell other people, normally people who are rooting for the other team. There is a bias in our announcement of the good news because there is joy. Christianity, Christianity is about proclaiming this good news, news that is so good it cannot be kept quiet. And yet maybe you're still wrestling with that this morning. Maybe you're wrestling with whether Jesus really did rise from the dead. Uh, maybe you find it hard to believe that a carpenter from Nazareth could be the savior of the world, could conquer sin and death, could bring forgiveness and a re renewed relationship to God as our Father and the hope of the resurrection and life to come. Maybe all that just seems outlandish and fanciful to you. Well, I do think that Jesus' resurrection makes the best sense out of what happened in history, out of what happened, has happened ever since through the church and its expansion throughout the world. There are lots of other things we could talk about, of course, but here would be my advice to you as you wrestle with this, as you ask questions, as you, as you look at the scriptures, as, as you do those things, ask God to reveal to you whether this is true. Ask him. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't believe in God in the first place. Why would I ask him? Fair enough. But Christianity teaches that it takes the power of the Spirit to bring us to the knowledge of the truth. And Christianity teaches that if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. And so ask him. Ask him to do that. Ask him to humble you. Ask him to fill you with his Spirit. And that will be the first step in knowing the resurrection power of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that, that you would humble us, all of us in this room, that you would humble us before the great news, the amazing news, the wonderful news that our Savior came and died for our sin, that he took our sin upon himself on the cross, that he bore the penalty, the punishment, the wrath of God for our sin. And then he rose from the dead conquering sin and death for us. Father, thank you that you now offer us life. Help us to believe that. Help us to grasp that. Help us to understand that. And help us to live in light of that, knowing that we need not fear. But we can live in the joy of the resurrection and the hope that that brings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.